This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, this is David Rutledge. Great to be with you right here in the Philosopher's Zone. This week, we're talking about friendship, and it's got me thinking about when was the last time I made a new friend? Because if you're anything like me, your circle of friends is closest and largest among the people you've known since you were in your teens and 20s. And then the circle of new friends sort of gets thinner and thinner as the years go by. Because making new friends requires time, it requires effort, and that means that the older you get, the less time you have, and so the more deliberate and sort of calculated the process of making friends tends to be. So today we're asking, what drives those processes of deliberation and calculation, or what should drive them? What do we look for when we're setting out to make a friend? That is a question that philosophers have been asking for centuries, and in Western philosophy, it's Aristotle who's often seen as the thinker who kicked it all off. His Nicomachean Ethics, which is a famous work that explores the question of how to live a good life, it has a very detailed discussion of friendship, where Aristotle defines three kinds of friendship. He ranks them in order of excellence and then lays down the conditions for attaining the best kind. But as we're going to be hearing, Aristotle's template for friendship isn't without its problems. And in order to address those problems, we could do a lot worse than consult the work of Mary Estelle, an early 18th century philosopher who wrote about friendship and has been described as the first English feminist. So to talk about all of that, I caught up this week with Michaela Manson, who's a postdoctoral fellow in philosophy at Melbourne's Monash University. Aristotle individuates three types of friendship on the basis of what is, he thinks, lovable. So there are three kinds of things that are lovable, Aristotle thinks, uh, things that are useful, things that are pleasant, and things that are good. And you can have friendships, as it were, premised on utility, uh, pleasure, or goodness. And so, for instance, in a friendship premised on utility, you might have affection for the other person because, say, they help you fix your car when it breaks down. In the case of friendships premised on pleasure, you might have a friendship with someone because they really make you laugh. But these kinds of friendships, you value the other person for what it is they provide to you, right? Either they help you um, in the case of utility, or they provide you with pleasure. So what you're sort of ultimately valuing in these first two kinds of friendship is something for yourself. And this is different from the third kind of friendship in which you love what is good. And this kind of friendship is often called a character friendship, where what it is that you value is the goodness or the virtue that you see as embodied in the person with whom you are friends. So you don't love them, you aren't friends with them because of some benefit they might provide to you, but rather because of the good qualities that you see them embodying and that you qualities that you admire and love because these are lovable and good qualities. So what are the conditions then, if we look at this character friendship, the friendship based on virtue, what are the conditions that this friendship has to make, according to Aristotle, in order to qualify as a, a character friendship? Yeah, so Aristotle thinks that in order to achieve a kind of character friendship, the two 
people who are friends themselves have to have good characters or be perfectly virtuous agents. So they're sort of seeing in each other the virtues um, that they embody. And being sort of a virtuous person is for Aristotle, but I think we can also acknowledge um, just from our own experience can be quite challenging. So for Aristotle to be virtuous, you have to be consistently courageous, temperate, generous, honest, witty, friendly. You have to be good with money, not spend too much, but not be stingy. Um, You have to be appropriately ambitious and appropriately humble without being self-effacing. But you also have to experience the right emotions in response to various situations. So there's this whole collection of different traits that you have to have mastered in order to be a virtuous character, in order to kind of qualify yourself to be loved by another uh, such person of perfect, virtuous character. What does Aristotle have to say about the possibility of true friendship between the sexes, between men and women? When it comes to talking about friendships between men and women, Aristotle focuses principally on the case of marriage. Again, so he's working with the Greek concept of philia, which is a form of love distinct from romantic or erotic love, but includes parental affection, um, affection between persons within a city or state, um, but also affection between husbands and wives and affections between those people we might ordinarily call friends. And between husbands and wives, Aristotle thinks there's going to be one of those unequal kinds of friendships because he thinks that the virtue which men are capable of is different in kind of the virtue which women are capable of. And so these differences in the kinds of virtue that they're capable of, and indeed the sense that the virtues that men are capable of is superior to the virtue that women are capable of, he thinks that the love um, between two such friends is going to be unequal or imbalanced in proportion to the kind of relative superiority or inferiority of those virtues. So again, if you think that true or perfect character friendship requires a kind of equality in the love that two friends bear to each other, and the love in marriage friendship is unequal, then this is an indication that true or character friendship um, is not something that can be achieved between men and women. That's interesting because if, according to Aristotle, women do possess virtue, but it's an inferior kind of virtue to the virtue possessed by men, is he suggesting then, or is there an implication there that women, therefore, you know, they, they can't meet the virtue condition for true friendship because the bar there is set so high, in which we have to infer that perfect character friendship even between women, is impossible. Is, is that how you read Aristotle? I think that's a distinct possible interpretation of Aristotle. And I think it's an interpretation that finds expression in other, you know, towering historical intellects. So, for instance, in Montaigne's essay of friendship, this is the essay in which, you know, he has this famous idiom expressing the kind of ineffable mystery of the friendship he has with um, La Boétie, he says, 
parce que c'était lui, parce que c'était moi, because it was him, because it was I. You know, there's not much more to be said to explain why it is we have this amazing friendship. Um, this kind of once in a few centuries uh, great friendship. He also says uh, the less often quoted phrase, um, the ordinary capacity of women is inadequate for that communion and fellowship, which is the nurse of this sacred bond. There it is. It's always there somewhere. Yeah. So really, so so even if Aristotle isn't explicit about whether women can achieve um, this great good of a true friendship, there are others who are explicit in thinking that this is just not something of which women are capable. Um, and indeed, a lot of the history of philosophy of friendship is written discussing um, strictly male friendships. And you may be able, in retrospect, to abstract away from gender um, and think, well, you know, it's just incidental that these historical sources are talking about friendship among men. But it's also interesting that against this background, um, in the early modern period, the period in which I'm interested in, which I research, there emerges a fair amount of writing by women on the subject of friendship and indeed on the subject of friendship between men and women, but also among women themselves. Well, let's stay in the early modern period then, because it's such an interesting period, say the late 17th, early 18th century, where we see an increase in philosophical activity, philosophical writing by women. So first of all, just sort of broadly, why is this happening? Why the emergence of women's philosophical voices at this time? I think it's in no small part to do with increased literacy rates in this period. So you go from a literacy rate of women of about 10% at the beginning of the 17th century. And depending on what country you're considering, by the middle of the 18th century, you have something between 40 and 60% literacy rates for women. So obviously, that's a vast, vast increase in uh, literacy so your next question then might be, well, why is there this increase in literacy? To which I would say, well, you have the invention of the printing press. And all of a sudden, where prior to the invention of the printing press, um, materials to read had to be transcribed by hand. And that was an incredibly laborious undertaking. Now you have just kind of an explosion of literature available, including editions of the Bible and the Protestant Reformation, which sought to increase literacy amongst a population so that they themselves would have direct access to the Word of God. So you have religious reasons for increased literacy. You have just the fact that there is more material available, and presumably this material contained really interesting stuff, really good ideas, and that would be, you know, certainly motivating to learn how to read in order to be able to be entertained, at least, by this literature. So there's a number of factors, I think, that can explain why it is we get such an increase of women's philosophical writing in this period. You also have salons and intellectual circles springing up, don't you? And this sort of informal exchange of ideas going on. And the salons have a lot of women involved in them. And that maybe goes some way toward answering my next question, which is that, you know, some of these early modern women philosophers 
share a very strong interest in the subject of friendship. So why do you think that that in particular is a common focus for these philosophers? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think any answer that I give you will be sort of underdetermined. You know, talking about friendship is a way, in a sense, of talking about love. And there was sort of this sexist prejudice in the era that, you know, women were more susceptible to passions and emotions, and especially the passion of love, for which reason it may have been thought that uh, given this susceptibility to this kind of passion or emotion, it's a fitting subject for women to reflect on, perhaps because it's one that they are more intimately familiar with or because they are thought to be somehow especially predisposed to feelings and questions and concerns related to love. On Radio National and the ABC Listen app, this is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week is Michaela Manson from Monash University in Melbourne. And just as a by the way, Michaela's research is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada through a major project called Extending New Narratives, which is an international network of scholars devoted to challenging conceptions of what constitutes the history of philosophy. Some really interesting work happening there, and we're going to put a link to Extending New Narratives on the Philosopher's Zone website. Well, this is a good time to bring Mary Estelle into the conversation. She was a late 17th, early 18th century English philosopher who's been described as a sort of a proto-feminist, a strong advocate for women's rights. She believed in the fundamental intellectual equality of men and women. And yet she's also a slightly ambivalent figure in feminist philosophy. Uh, tell us about Mary Estelle. She's seen as, I think, a feminist for advocating certain theses about women, especially in her works, uh, A Serious Proposal to the Ladies, Parts 1 and 2, the first part published in 1694, the second part in 1697, her Reflections Upon Marriage that came out in 1700, and her Christian Religion um, in 1705. And all these works have a common theme that women are capable and ought to be educated, um, and that they can thereby become judicious or really good judges. They can make reliable, sound judgments. And they can also achieve virtue and other great goods of which human beings are capable, including friendship. She also, in the context of reflections upon marriage, advocates the idea that unhappy marriages may be avoided and that marriage ought to be premised on a kind of friendship. In a Christian religion, she thinks that women can apply themselves to the principles of philosophy and religion and understand them for themselves, not have it interpreted for them by someone else. Um, and also that women, you know, should have confidence in their abilities and a kind of a, a self-esteem appropriate to the genuine talents that they possess. So those are some of the reasons for thinking of her as a kind of proto-feminist. Um, you might also just look at her as a figure and just think, you know, wow, she had this kind of profound self-possession. She achieved relative economic independence um, through her writing and through her associations with a kind of intellectual circle of women. Um, and these friendships supported her. She 
exhibited what it might be to have a kind of fulfilling and good life outside the sort of normal roles for women of either her era or perhaps ours. Um, And she was sometimes ridiculed. Um, Jonathan Swift called, variously called her um, Madanella or Platoon, Um, not unlike the way, you know, modern feminists can sometimes be ridiculed with monikers like feminazi. Mm -hmm. And she was really vocally engaged in political debates of her day. She published three political pamphlets in um, 1704, engaging in the occasional conformity debate, which is was a debate about whether Protestants or Catholics should be permitted to occasionally take communion in the Anglican Church in order to qualify themselves for public office, because in order to hold such a position in the period, one had to be a member of the Church of England. So she's really, as a figure, um, just this kind of astounding and impressive person. And I think In addition to some of the theses that she advocates, she can be kind of seen as an example of what it is to maybe live a feminist life in this period where doing so was not without severe challenges. But then on the other side, um, so you ask a bit about why she's a kind of ambivalent figure. Well, I mentioned the occasional conformity debate and her kind of conservatism in thinking that you have to be a member of the Church of England in order to hold these public offices. She's, you know, sometimes seems intolerant of religious differences. Um, She thinks that some hierarchies in society reflect a kind of divine providence as opposed to human invention. One of her famous phrases is, if all men are born free, how is it that all women are born slaves? And this is, she's saying this, of course, in a period where the transatlantic slave trade is booming and a portrait of one of her closest friends, Lady Catherine Jones, includes a depiction of a young African boy kneeling at the feet of two white women, right, appearing in a position of servitude that reflects ideas of, you know, racial, ethnic, and national superiority and domination by white and English society. And so I think modern feminists would reasonably think that Estelle fails to offer what we might now call a kind of intersectional analysis, a concept uh, popularized by Kimberly Crenshaw, which sees the concerns of women as not unified or reflected in the concerns of certain privileged white women, but rather the concerns of women are sort of modulated by the other identities that they also participate in. So sexual identities, um, racial, ethnic identities, economic identities, um, the identities as abled or disabled, right? So Estelle is sort of in some ways limited in her kind of the women with which she concerns herself. And there's this sort of irony in this, in that Estelle herself is sort of very sensitive to how humans are kind of self-blind and have a really difficult time identifying her own failures and shortcomings. And here, these can be kind of glaring examples of her own blind spots. So I would say those are aspects in which her feminism may not sit as easily with modern feminism. 
Mary Estelle often emphasises the importance of friendship in her work, particularly friendship between women. And um, as you've mentioned, we have this 1694 text, A Serious Proposal to the Ladies, and that's a text that explores friendship in some detail. What does she have to say about friendship? And I'm going to sort of bring this around to Aristotle in a minute, but can you sort of sketch out her philosophy of friendship here? Sure. So she thinks, uh, again, friendship is one of the greatest goods of human life. It's a treasure unlike any other. She thinks those who are fortunate enough to experience a true friendship can realize its value exceeds all the other things that we might place some value on in our lives. Those things pale in comparison to the value of a good friendship. And for her... One of the significant parts of true friendship is that friends will be better positioned to perceive the faults and errors of their friends. And again, this relates back to what I said about Estelle recognizing that humans are kind of liable to a kind of self-blindness, not be able to perceive um, their own shortcomings. And so... Friends, in a way, allow us to overcome this obstacle by, you know, we're better observers of others than we are of ourselves. And our friends can observe things in us that they can then convey to us in order to help us improve or amend those faults in becoming wise and virtuous. So for Estelle, you know, the real goods of human life, in addition to friendship, are wisdom, virtue, happiness, and ultimately salvation. And she thinks that friendship really is part of the educative process of improving in these respects and that what friends stand to do for each other is help each other achieve these goods. Because truly loving a friend with love of benevolence, as I mentioned before, is wanting what is good for your friend. So if what is really good is wisdom and virtue and you want your friend to have what is really good for them, you as a friend, it's your duty to tell your friend what you perceive them to be missing when it comes to achieving wisdom and virtue. And, you know, on the face of this, this can sound maybe a bit like a harsh conception of friendship, like, oh, your friend's going to come around and criticize you and tell you the ways in which you're <laughs> failing to be virtuous and wise. But it's not quite as harsh as it initially sounds. Um, she does think, you know, you have to convey these observations, you know, sweetly in a way that they're going to receive uptake by your friend. So you have to be sensitive to your friend's temperament and disposition and in letting them know. And hopefully, you know, you're also doing this for your friend. And so you both have a kind of mutual understanding that by doing this, you're aiming to help each other out. You're aiming at each other's good. You know, someone isn't just telling you these things in order to simply hurt your feelings or make you feel bad about yourself. They're telling you them so that you can um, genuinely improve. And as you genuinely improve, you know, so too may your confidence, your appropriate kind of confidence and self-esteem um, grow. So if we bring it back to Aristotle then and, and his philosophy of friendship, we've talked about how his notions of friendship can be problematic. You know, they, they sort of gesture in the direction of a kind of elitism where only the supremely virtuous, only the noble can really experience true friendship. I want to know, is your interest in a figure like Mary Estelle 
animated by the notion that her ideas of friendship can sort of rescue Aristotle. Like she, she keeps what's good and sensible about his work while effectively dodging the problematic aspects. Right. So against some of the criticisms or counterexamples, so the idea that bad people could potentially be friends, I think one thing that her account preserves is the idea that what it is to really love somebody is to want what is good for that person, right? So you can't want a potential friend to do bad things. You have to want that potential friend to achieve the goods of wisdom and virtue. So you assist that person. Um, you really love that person by assisting that person in achieving those goods. But also recognizing that because the principal duty of friends is this kind of educative role aiming at their friend's improvement, this entails that true friends don't already have to be uh, perfectly virtuous, right? They can be, um, you know, exhibit typical human moral failings. And really being a friend to that person is helping them out with improving on those kinds of failings. So if we see the subjects who can really be true friends as those who can be admonished and admonish each other. It can be those who are kind of working towards achieving virtue um, that count as having a true friendship and not merely those who are already perfectly virtuous. Well, just finally, Michaela, I'm interested in your own stake in this topic. I mean, are there ways in which you conduct your own friendships that are motivated by this philosophical work that you're doing? Uh, yeah, I think certainly. So I'm recently relocated to Australia where I only have a cousin that lives many hours away from me. So I have to take on a conscious effort at making friends since coming here. And a lot of times I think we think of friendship as something that just happens to us, um, that we're kind of passive with respect to. But I think it's a fairly familiar experience for a lot of adults that we realize how hard it can be to make friends once we've moved on from the stages of secondary or tertiary education. But what Estelle um, tells us is that we should take an active role in choosing our friends and to be careful and considerate in that choice, um, not unlike how we might be careful and considerate in choosing a life partner to whom we would commit. And to really look at the character of that person and the potential in that person and see whether it reflects what we do and ought to value. And I think another thing related to this, you know, as you get older, there are, at least for a period of your life, really increasing demands from work, family, the administrative duties of life and other commitments. And we find ourselves with less and less time for that, which is, you know, presumably actually among one of the greatest goods of life, our friendships. And we'll, while we can't always give up on those other commitments or negotiate more hours in the day, we can consciously see and set friendship as a kind of priority worth cultivating. Um, and I think that can help guide us in particular decisions about what to do, right? Should I binge watch the new um, streaming series or should I pick up the phone and try to spend an hour or two with so-and-so? And so, again, Estelle doesn't think we have to have a lot of friends. So, you know, friendship may be a bit more rare than we commonly think it is, although not as rare as the Aristotelian conception or other conceptions of friendship that put it outside the reach of a lot of us. But 
even if we only have one or two friends, um, we will live a good life by having those relationships. And I think if we're kind of selective in those friendships, um, using some of the criteria that she provides, we can potentially have more time for those who really matter to us. Michaela Manson, postdoctoral fellow in philosophy at Monash University in Melbourne. And as I mentioned earlier, her research is funded through a very interesting project called Extending New Narratives, which is all about recovering marginalised voices in the history of philosophy. There's a link on the Philosopher's Zone website, and of course this and all of our past programs can be found via the ABC Listen app. Thank you, my friends. I'm David Rutledge, and I will see you next time. Bye for now. Bye for now.